Hi everyone, this is Serhat. My guest today is Chris Perkins, the president of CoinFund. CoinFund is a crypto-native investment firm that started in 2015. Hi Chris, welcome to the Curious Learners. Hey Serhat, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So Chris, you've got great experience in traditional finance and you joined CoinFund last year. What was the opportunity that you saw in crypto and hence you made the decision to leave Citigroup and join CoinFund? I spent quite a long time in traditional finance, 15 years. So before that, I was a U.S. Marine. I transitioned out of that into Lehman Brothers, did two years, went through the insolvency there, which was really an incredible, terrible, but an incredible experience. I transitioned to City the following day and spent 13 years and, and I had to build a business. I was kind of like a founder as, as I built a brand new business out of the crisis. And a guy named Gary Gensler was my regulator. And so, you know, worked over the years to, you know, build that regulated business from the ground up. We had a lot of success. It was the number one business in the world. I was running two additional businesses. Uh, I ran a global futures business and I ran our, our foreign exchange prime brokerage business, which I took charge of after Bloomberg reported a $180 million loss. And so again, my experience was always, you know, building businesses, working with regulators and making them, them work. And, and, and two of those businesses were the largest in the world. And I think by the time I left, I was running the largest intermediary, but I gotten into, into crypto years prior. And, you know, by nights and weekends, I was a DJ and learning about the technology, touching and feeling it. I had tried back, you know, gosh, as early as 2016, probably trying to get the bank to start embracing the technology. And I, and I kept banging my head against the wall and failing to get them to adopt it. As time went on, it was very, very difficult for me to be away from this innovation. And I wanted to get closer to it. I saw crypto as being, you know, a fundamental change that was coming. And I don't think people realized the size of the change that was happening, you know, and, and, I, and I developed this thesis around how, you know, effectively, this is the third innovation on the central ledger itself. And, and when you mess with a ledger, the ledger tracks assets and liabilities. And it really, it's it's the it's the center of the economy. I was building these three businesses, but I, I just couldn't ignore the value that was being created. And I would look at my day job and I would be struggling, you know, with things such as settlements, where it would take days to settle yen as an example. And then, you know, by night I, I could go, you know, into the DeFi world and settle instantaneously anywhere. And so I realized that the technology had gotten so far out in front of, of you know, what I was doing in traditional finance. You know, and what did what did crypto need? I mean, the regulators were coming, governments were trying to get their heads around it. I do think that there is a lot of you know positive regulatory momentum today, but I knew that I had this unique skill set where I know as things go from unregulated to regulated, I know how to build businesses. As I started meeting people in the industry, I met the the Coin Fund team, and the chemistry was just incredible. These were OG investors, been around since 2015. They know the community's cold. They understand, you know, the technology. They and the culture is one of founders first. And it was a culture that I could really, really get my head around. It was something that I really enjoyed. There's nothing better than working with founders and helping them build businesses. And I, I brought that unique skill set. I brought the unique background in traditional finance, the unique relationships I you know, have with, with the global regulators and, and, and governments. I know how to build businesses. And, and, I, and I really wanted to be part of the investment process because I kind of know how, how all these Legos come together. So it was, a, it was a great fit. Been at the company for over a year. I've enjoyed every second of it, despite some of the, the macro pressures that the industry's felt. I'm as excited as ever about the future, and, and I'm really enjoying my time in the space. You already answered part of my next question, which was, 
obviously you've been in crypto interested passionate about it since 2016 as you said and then coin fund it's one of the oldest actually institutional investment firms in the space yet they still need you who spend a very long time in tradfi your experience you know taking a big industry from unregulated to regulated is massive is that where where coin fund needed you the most was that part of your early discussions as you started to talk to them I think having differentiated regulatory connectivity and and experience I think was was something that that they that that was a very nice complementary skill set. You know, we all are very diverse. We've got folks with background in computer science, mathematics, private equity, buy side, venture. And so like I I was able to come in with a sell side mindset um which is unique. And again, our theory is one our, our thesis is one of of convergence. Like I said, you know we had these dot com companies back in the 90s today you know every company's a dot com company you know now we've got these crypto companies in the future every company is going to be a web3 or crypto company and so you know particularly in finance we're seeing convergence happen every 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 single day it and it and it seems to be accelerating particularly on the institutional side of things but but that regulatory experience was something I brought to the table but you know like i said i, I was you know, I spent a lot of time building businesses as well. And, you know, I've, I've got, you know, when you when you stick around traditional finance for 15 years, you also get to build a pretty robust network. And I love opening up that network to our founders and seeing how I can assist them. Absolutely. And and I think, Chris, from that perspective, you seem to be in a quite unique position. Not a lot of bankers have, you know, building experiences like you did in the past. But Chris, if we switch gears to the market landscape for crypto, you know, when it first started, everyone was attracted to it for the very simple reason of, you know, it, it is self-sovereign, decentralized, you know, no permission needed from any centralized body. But but these days we started to talk about merging of TradFi and DeFi quite a lot. And we now all of us expect institutions to come into crypto for that to achieve its true potential. So so how do you define, you know, the current landscape of crypto market in terms of, you know, the key participants, you know, given your experience, again, we will, t- we will get to talk about it specifically later on the show, taking a, a huge industry from deregulated to regulated. How do you see the current landscape for crypto? As I mentioned, despite some of the macro stresses that we're seeing that are impacting all asset classes, I do see some tailwinds for crypto that the other asset classes simply don't enjoy. And, and long-term, medium-term, I'm actually very bullish based on all the different things that, that that I mentioned previously. So let's break it down. The first theme that gets me excited is one of regulatory de-risking. And I know people will say, what are you talking about, Chris? You know, the CFTC just, you know, it, it went after a DAO. Well, well, Tornado Cash, they're sanctioning code. Okay, maybe that's the case, but if you step back, you know, a few years ago, this technology was thought of as, you know, very nefarious Silk Road types. Fast forward to today, we've had a number of different things happen throughout the world. You have President Biden talking about coming up with responsible innovation. In fact, the narrative that I hear when I speak to very senior government officials, and I've spoken to them at the highest levels, folks that are drafting some of the, the, the bills that hopefully will become law. They want to get educated. They want to think about how they can use this technology to advance their principles. And fundamentally, the principles of crypto very much align with Western democracy, right? Think about a DAO as an example, giving communities voter ownership, you know, private property into the internet. It it really aligns with Western values. And so governments, whether it's, you know, I've I've had lunch with folks like the economic secretary of the treasury in the UK. I've spoken with senior officials in in, in the EU. They all want to differentiate their jurisdictions to attract talent, to attract jobs, right? 
Now, how do you strike that balance? And, and I don't think these types of things happen overnight. Over time, I'm hopeful that that balance will be struck. But generally speaking, I'm seeing a high degree amount of regulatory de-risking. Look at the, new, the number of bills that are coming out in the U.S. as an example, right? And, and I do think we'll have policy here. And once we have policy, you know, even if the policy isn't perfect, it gives our founders certainty to build. So we expect policy to come out on stable coins here soon. After that, you'll have crypto policy. And then our founders will, you know, maybe they, they'll, they'll know true, the true guardrails upon which we can help them structure and, and really scale. So that's the first theme, regulatory de-risking. The second theme is, you know, as that regulatory de-risking happens, it opens up institutional markets because institutions are then comfortable to come into the space. You're already seeing some of that. And so in, it, there is one cryptocurrency where the regulation in the US is pretty clear, and that's Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been deemed a commodity. And so what do you see? You see BlackRock and Aladdin, with its $20 trillion in assets that it helps connect to the world economy, offer Bitcoin products. And so the second theme is, is institutional adoption. We've seen announcements across finance, people, like I said, like BlackRock, I saw Franklin Templeton come out with an announcement recently. Every single uh, financial company that I'm aware of, and I saw this even you know a year ago, they're all trying to figure out how to get into this space and that regulatory de-risking will help. You're also seeing it across the consumer space. You know, you know how many companies have come out with, with initiatives in crypto? And NFTs is an example. Adidas, Nike, Disney, the list will go on and on. And as I said, eventually, every single company is going to have a Web3 strategy, just like the dot-com days. Okay, so that's the second theme. Third theme that we're seeing, and, and I think you know, during bear markets, there are some benefits where founders are distracted by maybe some of the capital raising, and they're getting their heads down and they're building. We're seeing incredible innovation emerge. We're seeing the smartest minds in the space moving into develop. We're seeing folks come from Web 2 to develop in Web 3 with incredible themes, incredible developments within infrastructure. I mean, across the board, across our, our investment verticals, we're seeing like very, very strong innovation. And that gets me incredibly excited for the near to medium term. Some of those things you mentioned, one regulatory de-risking and the other two institutions and, and the pace of building. So obviously progress is made best when all of these work you know, in alignment with each other, isn't it the same or similar pace? In terms of regulatory landscape for crypto and the recent tornado cash sanctions, as you alluded to as well. So is regulatory progress lagging behind technological progress? Do you share that view? And if that's the case, how much of a problem is there? Look, I think throughout history, you've seen many instances where technology has surpassed law and regulation. If you talk to people like our strategic advisor, Christian Carlo, he looks at our regulatory infrastructure similar to bridges and roads. And you know, we need an investment in both, frankly, and they need to be rethought. When discussing regulation, it's really important that we focus on principles, right? And rather than get into arguments over jurisdiction, what is what, what is how, you know, who gets to govern it, like, what are we trying to solve for right here? And, and when you step back, I think there are some very clear things that everyone will agree on. You know, we don't like fraud. We don't like manipulation. Those are bad. I was a U.S. Marine. I've had many, many friends killed by terrorists. I don't want to give money to terrorists, right? So we need to solve for that. And I think technology will. You know, disclosures, do we, you know, do we want to make sure that folks are participating in this manner in a responsible way? You know, I, these are general concepts that I think we can reach agreement across regulators. And so, you know, I, I published an op-ed with Christian Carlo and Mark Weijin, where we really spoke about, you know, how do we solve some of these challenges? And I think 
a couple of the challenges that exist today is that there just isn't law, there isn't statute that that really helps the regulators regulate because there's confusion over what's a security, what's a commodity. And so the, the problem that we have is that democracy is the worst form of government, except for every other gov- form of government. I think Winston Churchill said that. It just takes time, right? And so it's important for industry participants to really invest in the dialogue and education with the policymakers. And frankly, when I speak to folks on Capitol Hill, they're very receptive. And I can't tell if I'm speaking to a rep- Republican or Democrat, they're asking very thoughtful questions about, hey, how do we make this work? And so I think it starts at the, the legislative level where we need to make sure that principles are, are adhered to. And then at the at the regulatory level, once those guardrails are defined, you know, we will be able to help work with our founders to create within those, to, to build within whatever jurisdiction they look on 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 the tornado cash thing, it's it's a very complex issue. You know, how do we as an industry work together to make sure that that folks that are taking advantage of, of our ecosystem, like the Lazarus group, how, how do we how do we mobilize to keep them out so that we don't have, you know, what we had with Tornado Cash? Look, we believe in privacy. I think most people, even within the government, believe that privacy is a right and that there's nothing anti-democratic about privacy. I do think that that the courts will work through some of these issues, but I'm also very encouraged. I'm, I'm encouraged that I'm starting to see technology solve for some of these challenges. You know, how do we, you know, make sure that, that 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 bad actors are not able to take advantage of our technology? And so you're seeing new innovation on AML KYC, making sure that, you know, bad actors aren't able to take advantage. So generally speaking, I'm encouraged. Are the final outputs going to be perfect? Are there going to be mistakes along the way? Absolutely. Do we need to mobilize to continue to educate? Yes. It's an incredibly important investment. I don't think enough folks in our industry make that investment and I encourage you so. A quick follow-up, Chris, in terms of regulatory frameworks. Obviously, crypto, the beauty of it is that it is, you know, borderless, permissionless. It works globally, instantaneously. But hence, you know, the regulatory frameworks across different jurisdictions also some sort of need to be aligned. Do you have any concerns there? As you know, there's tension across regions. Do you have any concerns on that front as to, you know, the pace might be different across regions, hence it might cause a problem in the progress? It's something that has existed for many years, even in traditional finance, you know, extraterritorial regulatory like interfaces have always been complex. Typically the way that that governments deal with it is through something called substitute compliance, where they'll recognize the regime of an equivalent government. There's plenty of precedent for for those types of regimes. And that's how I would expect for it to play out. Um, So essentially, hey, we're in the US, there's a front end, there's a company domiciled in the US, they follow US laws. Okay, the the, the FCA, the the UK, the EU, they recognize the, the US regime as something of equivalence. That, that's one of the reasons why we're starting to see a lot more focus on national level law and regulation rather than state level, because it's hard for you know, a particular state to have that type of relationship with the foreign government. So you know, you, I would expect the trend to see more federal regulation for that matter, because then you can have those types of substitute compliance regimes where there's plenty of precedent for. But you're right, it's incredibly complex, but it's also a huge opportunity, right? Why? Because as investors, we're not investing in a small company that needs to slowly scale from where it started. Every time something is released into into the crypto sphere, the valuation is instantaneously global. And so, yeah, there's more regulatory complexity, but there's also a ton.
ton more opportunity. And that's what makes me very excited about this space. As you mentioned as well, you interacted with Gary Gensler in the past in your capacity in Stratify. And he recently stated nothing about the crypto markets is incompatible with the securities laws which I guess is a clear sign that he wants to fit it under, under securities. What do you think of that statement or sort of his broader views around cryptocurrencies being securities? So it's a really, really challenging question. And it's one that hasn't been worked out. So let me unpack how the regulation works today. A lot of people don't understand it. But in the US, through a US lens, everything in the world is a commodity, except for movie receipts, onions, and security. Like very few people know that, but, but that's how the law is written. Okay, so I think we know what onions and movie receipts are. What are securities? Securities are based on the Howey test, which is based on case law going back 70 years, based on an orange grove in Florida. So effectively, if something's a security, if there's an expectation of profit um, from in a common enterprise, from the efforts of others, and they apply this framework to ascertain what is a security. And there's plenty of things getting batted about in the court right now, including the Ripple case that may set some precedent. And, and so to the extent that a cryptocurrency is a security, then yeah, it would be obviously regulated by the SEC. To the extent it's a commodity, you know, remember that it's not that it's not unregulated. The, the CFTC has authority to regulate any commodity for purposes of fraud, manipulation, and abuse, which is great. Like you don't want that kind of stuff happening. But but what would be better than trying to figure out who owns what? Like I said, would be to have that that national level law that kind of made it clearer. And it sounds like the like like whether you're looking at stabbing out boozman, those types of bills are, are trying to, to clarify that to a degree. So that's how it would play out. But you know, does the SEC have a role to play? Yeah, to the extent something is security. Will there be securities in crypto? Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I do think that there's incredible opportunity to tokenize existing equities today, and those should be regulated like securities, and that's how the laws work. But but there are, I think again, it's not I, I would rather step back and say, what are we trying to solve for from a principles basis? And then it shouldn't matter which regulator has it. It's about making sure those principles are followed. It's going to take time. We don't expect a law to come out. Certainly not this year. Next year, maybe there's going to be a changing, you know, there'll be a new Congress after November. We'll see how that plays out. But ultimately, I think it's in our interest if we want to, you know, any government, it's in their interest to get it, get things right. Because once they have that common framework, then it'll attract the best and brightest to build. And I think that's what we all want. I totally agree with you, Chris, as to where you say the technology itself, obviously, is not the shouldn't be the focus here, right? So as in how it is applied, if you apply it, obviously, in the tokenization of equities, which is clearly securities, then, of course, it will be within the scope of SEC's you know, framework, but otherwise not. So you said people in D.C., in a bipartisan way, they ask the right questions, they are interested. But do you think they understand, you know, the technology, the potential of it as to how they can utilize it for the for mass adoption, you know, for the broader use of society? Because only then, obviously, they would be able to, you know, bring in the right policies, regulations, etc. So how much education is needed to bring these people up to speed? Yeah. So, so when you speak to the policymakers, they have a lot on their mind. They have got a lot of domestic issues that they're grappling with. They have a lot of foreign policy issues that are top of mind, national security challenges. They're very, very busy people. And so one of the things that makes me excited about crypto is that 
there seems to be, there, there are very few places where they actually align and, and, and agree, right? Right now, I, I do think that they've, that Democrats and, and Republicans in the US, an example, you know, have come together and, and they agree that, you know, some of the behavior of, of a couple countries is, is probably not what it should be. So, you know, when you look at, at Russia or China, uh, there seems to be uniform agreement that, you know, we need to take a, a, a certain type of policy response. I, I would argue that within crypto, I'm also seeing a, a rare instance where Democrats and Republicans are coming together and actually agreeing um, that thoughtful policy needs to be solved for. Now, now the devil's in the details. And, and you know, as you get into some of the those details, there, there, there tends to be a degree of, of disagreement, but, but I'm, I'm very encouraged that, that there is still that bipartisan support, which gives us confidence that despite all those other competing challenges, for them to actually get laws done, they have to agree. And this is a place where they put, they, 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 there seems to be a degree of, of, of agreement. So therefore, education is imperative, making sure that it gets onto their agendas so that they do push this forward. And I think it's happening. And, and so the point is, is that you can never provide enough education. There are some trade groups out there that are doing really great work to, to help keep it on the front of their minds. But again, I would call on any any industry participant who matters. You know, a sentence, one sentence within law could, could translate to billions of dollars in downstream value in crypto. One sentence, you know, one word even. And so it's just important that we stay engaged. I think we discussed regulation quite a bit. How about we move to the business side of things? Coin fund invests obviously across the whole spectrum of crypto, including DeFi infrastructure, NFT, tooling, DAO, etc. What excites you the most, Chris? And I'm asking this question in particular, you know, given your TradFi background, as to how you see the potential is quite interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, we're excited across all the various verticals that you mentioned. Let's let's unpack some of them. I think let's, infrastructure is an obvious one. Look, the Web3 experience has been not the greatest user experience to date, but you're seeing a ton of developers pour in to fix some of those infrastructure challenges. A couple of themes, cross-chain interoperability, right? Today, I mean, it reminds me of like when I was in college in the 90s, trying to like manually log onto my server, like, you know, manually logging onto a blockchain. I think in the future, you're going to press a button and those blockchains, you know, could compete for on TPS security and cost. So that user experience is is gonna is is something that makes me very excited and, and that really starts with the infrastructure layer. You mentioned NFTs and NFT tooling. I mean, yes, they've started out with this unique use case, art and JPEGs very accessible, but you can take anything now, anything that's non-fungible and put it into the internet and for value. Once you unlock things like valuations, you can unlock an entire new financial capability for collateral lending, borrowing, you know, everything else. And so I think that entire, you know, NFT tooling space, super interesting. DAOs, I think, you know, again, another example where the technology has surpassed law and regulation. DAOs, DAO tooling, very, very interesting from my perspective. You know, the gaming space, look, to date, very fascinating concepts with things like Axie Infinity. However, the user experience, again, the games haven't been great. And so these next generation games is going to attract an entire new set of, of folks. DeFi as well. Again, you know, I think DeFi is, is a fascinating technology. I think a lot of folks in DeFi, the technology, the protocols are great. As we start helping protocols navigate some of the, the regulatory challenges of DeFi, I think the use case is, is going to be humongous. And so what are some of those challenges? How do you solve for the OFAC AML KYC sanctions issue? That's one. Then there's also licensing issues. And I think over time, this concept of a DeFi mullet where regulated front end and then the back end doing what it does is going to be super, super exciting. You know, as you start thinking about major themes as well, I think the intersection of ESG 
and blockchain is interesting. The intersection of AI and blockchain, super, super interesting. And so as you start looking at you know, major, major trends and where they intersect with blockchain, we also will drill into, into those issues and protocols. Thank you, Chris, for the overview there. And, you know, as someone who is most fascinated with DeFi and infrastructure among those, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes on DeFi with you. How do you interpret DeFi? What do you think is the full potential of it? And are you happy with what it has achieved so far? Obviously, you know, conscious of the fact that it's only a few years perhaps since it emerged, so we shouldn't be, you know, too harsh on it anyways. But I, I'm really curious to hear your views there. Yeah, I'm a big believer in DeFi. And I think it's going to change the financial world. It's going to lead to much more inclusion, much more access. But, but there are certain things that will have to be solved for to the global financial crisis. I was at Lehman. What caused it? Centralization caused it, right? There were all these derivatives and a handful of banks. And one thing led to the next and the house of cards started to fall. The regulatory response to that was even more centralization where we had to centralize at $700 trillion in, in derivatives, right? Why? Because they didn't have any alternative from a technology perspective. And I think decentralization of that risk would have much been much, much, much more. So, so where do we go from here? As you drill into DeFi, the technology is wonderful. It's working, but you know, they're nervous because what happens if bad actors come in and you transact with them and you, they're on the sanctions list and it's immutable and you can kind of see you transacted with the wrong person. So, you know, that that kind of doesn't work for institutions and for DeFi to achieve its full potential. So you, you, you got to start by solving this issue around sanctions. There are a couple of ways that you can do it. One would be to, to have an ecosystem that has been effectively monitored and KYC. So if you're in like, an, you know, this is an example, like an avalanche subnet, okay, to get into that subnet, you have to go through an AY, AML KYC perspective. Or you could have a situation where certain participants have like a soulbound NFT where there's been that MLKYC and you check. There are also a number of different analytic firms coming online where you can actually, you know, look into the pools where you're transacting and see, you know, how contaminated, for lack of a better word, those pools are. Once you run those analytics, you can know your risk and decide to transact. And so technology is coming online where you can start solving for, where you can start solving, you know, for some of these OFAC challenges. You know, then the founders are like, you know, I did it. I solved for OFAC. I'm good. But then I'm like, well, wait a second. You also have licenses, right? And that's the other part of it that, that a lot of folks don't understand. And so to have a marketplace that you're marketing, you're going to need to have you know, certain licenses, whether it's a DCM license, if it's commodities, derivatives, whether it's, you know, you know the SEC has, has very similar type, type licenses as well. If you want to centrally clear, you need a DCO license. And so you're going to need to solve for that as well, you know, to the extent that you want something institutional and scalable. And so one thing that, you know, we work with, with various protocols on is, okay, mapping out the space, you know, how do we solve these very unique challenges? If... You know, while, while also working with policymakers, you know, I had, a, I had a really interesting conversation with someone very, very senior in, in Congress who's a staffer. And she's like, hey, can you explain to me why do we need clearinghouses if we have smart contracts? And so these things don't happen overnight. But I think over time, you know, we can work with companies to try to map out how, how to achieve those licenses to achieve true scale as we move forward. So, so those are the types of things that we work with these founders on. I think it's an incredibly exciting place to be. You'll end up with the kind of a DeFi mullet where the front end is, is regulated. The back end does what it does. And uh, that's how we'll end up. That's fascinating. And you mentioned institutions, Chris. So what, what do we understand from institutions coming into DeFi? You alluded to that a little bit. I don't, I don't want you to repeat yourself necessarily, but why is it so critical other than obviously, you know, clear impact in terms of capital flow? 
I think that we can have a much better marketplace through DeFi in, in the long term. Clearly, accessibility. I think risk as well. You know, when I was running, I ran the largest intermediary in the world at one time when I was at City. And if you think about it, the way it would work, and I'll give derivatives as an example. So a client would put on risk, sometimes a lot of risk. And the central clearinghouse would call me for collateral, you know, even though it was their risk. And then I would have to wait for them to pay me back. And so risk would accumulate in the system. And sometimes it got a little bit uncomfortable. So to the extent that you have a new structure where people are paying for their own risks, they're meeting their own obligations in real time. I think that you're, you'll actually have a more inclusive, but also a better risk managed system where that risk is better collateralized. People are paying for their own risk. And if there's an issue and they get liquidated, well, you know, that's, that, that's on them because, you know, it, it was the risk that they put on, not, not through somebody else. And so we get in trouble when, you know, you're paying for somebody else's risk. Uh, and that seems to be the issue. So I, I do think it will result in a stronger ecosystem in the, in the long term as well. I like the fact that, you know, you mentioned better marketplace and risk a few times. So that's really worth risk management. Maybe that's really worth the space is missing. Otherwise, technology wise, as we've seen in the latest market downturn and all these collapsing CFI institutions as well in crypto protocols like Aave, you know, compound curve of this world, obviously they continue to work pretty well. So that actually validates how good technology is. It's a great point. You know, in this latest bout of volatility, what, you know, what caused the issue was when the CFI lenders, you know, came under pressure and they're like, you know what, you know, we're, we're going to lower your collateral levels. You know, they made mistakes in their haircut levels. And to your point, the, uh, the DeFi protocol stood very strong. And that's an important lesson to take away from, from recent events. You mentioned that in the front end, maybe a regulated structure and in the, in the back end crypto native framework. And my point is around, you know, how we can merge really DeFi and TradFi, which is clearly going to be a big catalyst to unlock a huge market in financial services, be it, you know, payments, remittance, lending, whatever. How, how can we do it though, practically? Since you were essentially a founder before in a very large setting, if you were a founder now again, how would you approach it? Yeah, I mean... I alluded to it, it depended what I was trying to solve for. If I'm running a DeFi protocol and I'm trying to maximize my liquidity, you know, first you have to understand the regulation that you're dealing with. And in certain cases, it's not very regulated right now. So for spot markets, you know, clearly you need to make sure that something is not a security. You do your diligence around that. You run the Howey test or, or whatever protocol. And then it, large provided it's a commodity, you make sure that folks are not, there's no fraud manipulation or abuse and you've solved for the, for the OFAC challenge. To the extent that you get into derivatives, it's a lot more complex. And I do believe that derivatives are underserved currently in crypto markets. Here is where you need to really start thinking through the complexity of, of some of your licenses. You clearly have to solve for the OFAC challenge as well, but now you have to start understanding, you know, what's required for me to operate? What, what, what licenses do I have to put together? It's going to be very hard to operate from a DeFi perspective in the United States because the derivatives, the derivatives license requirements are very strict. You need to have a license as a DCM. You need to have a license as an FCM. You need to have a license as a DCO. And these can all be different counterparties. And so, you know, out of the gate, maybe there's a way to partner with somebody who has those licenses already and you can provide better technology to them. That said, is it truly going to be DeFi? I don't know if it can be DeFi here in the US with the requirement for centralization that we have. And so then you start looking at other jurisdictions where you can you know, potentially have those licenses. But I think across the board, it, it really starts with making sure you solve for the pretty much the universal sanctions challenges. 
and then understanding you know which regulatory regimes will get you where you need to be and it's early days obviously understandably a lot of the founders who come to the space from the technology side of it do not have much idea as to you know the regulatory framework licenses you know what sort of policies that they need to comply with so certainly your expertise is very helpful for them on those fronts but my question was going to be around what other areas where you think you know the founders need the biggest help other than this yeah so you know what we do is we always try to put founders first and we have a very diverse team based on background but also by by gender and ethnicity or 30% women and so and i think 25% persons of color so it's very important to have that diverse skill set that you can bring value um to to founders we'll assist them at the technology level so we have computer scientists will help them who will help them you know literally look at their code and help them think through that as well. We will help them structure their businesses as well. We you know will provide marketing. A lot of folks will need marketing advice and assistance. You know, perhaps one of the greatest things we bring is talent. You know, we we hired a head of talent recently, Margaret Gabriel, who's just incredible. So we'll work with the founders to understand their gaps in talent so that they can acquire that expertise that's needed to be successful. And so, you know, all of us come together. It's it's core to our culture to help really because, you know, The great thing about venture is, you know, when you invest in a company, your values are 100% aligned. You you want them to be successful so much and because we're wired like that, we will do whatever it takes to give them the resources and the expertise to make them successful. Obviously by the time you meet them, most of them have their ideas and have their products already perhaps. I think the, the overarching goal is, you know, to solve for mass adoption of DeFi or crypto more broadly, right? So there seems to be a consensus around, you know, UI, UX usability is challenging. So we all know that. And uh, but I also think, you know, security and consumer protection are quite important as well for an ordinary person to, you know, create a wallet and start engaging with DeFi protocols or whatever, because they don't actually have much of that discretionary income, so to say, to play with. In your initial discussions with your founders, do these things come up as to the nature of the problem that they are trying to solve and how do you steer them? I mean, of course, it, it all depends on on the various protocol or company, you know, that they all these founders are trying to solve a problem, right? And and so so our job as investors is to, you know, understand first off, is this the team? You know, oftentimes, you know, founders will pivot and and the original idea that they have is not the 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 idea that makes them successful. And so, you know, when we when we, you know, work with founders in the beginning, you know, that's really who we're investing in, particularly at the seed level. So understanding the problem that they're trying to solve and understanding, you know, What's the, what's the entirety of the market, right? And then, you know, as, as we started packing their business model, um, understanding the complexities around it, the resources that they need it, and how we can help them close those gaps based on our experience, you know, and the partnerships too, like we have a portfolio of over a hundred other companies. A lot of times, you know, they're, they're not necessarily competing. They're, they're working in, in different fields where there's a lot of synergies that can be built, but simply by introductions. And so there's nothing better than putting two of our portfolio companies together um, so that they can together build value, you know, by offering services or ex- advice or expertise. We will also have, you know, we've got channels together where portfolio channels where people can freely interact and, and share those best practices. But, but, you know, in many cases, you know, all of our founders are trying to solve a problem. They're trying to disrupt something or fix something. Many times they have the same challenges and, it, and it's really our job to help you know, based on our view of the entire landscape to help navigate them through. It's a great part of the job. If everything goes to plan, what do you think will be the biggest transformation in crypto in the next year, maybe short term, and in the next five years, a bit midterm? What do you expect to happen? 
in the next five years, maybe there, there aren't any more crypto companies, right? If everything goes as planned, because every company will be a crypto company, right? <laughs> that's awesome. it, you know, it's like that, 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 that's, that's how everything, that's how the plan comes together. And I do think that, that that's the case. In, in the near term, what am I focused on? I'm really excited about the derivatives landscape, working very closely with the regulators to try to change market structure there, testified in front of Congress. I think we're going to see some movement there. I'm excited about the stablecoin space. Again, hopefully we're going to have some really strong statute coming out and then we'll be able to build around it. These are near-term things that I think will, will be an impetus to, to additional growth. Medium term, we'll have clearer statute laws here in the United States maybe the next one to two years that will again enable an incredible amount of building to take place. Cause now our founders will, you know, know the rules of the road and they'll, they'll know what they, they can and can't build and how to build it. So that, that, that makes me excited, but, but look, I think ultimately, what are we trying to solve for? We're trying to solve for a better world. We're trying to solve for a market that's inclusive where the unbanked can become banked. And at the end of the day, you know, all the ships are going to rise with that tide. So that, that's really what we're trying to solve for. There are 1.4 billion unbanked people worldwide. So there needs to be a solution for them. And crypto is a strong candidate. Right. I totally agree. And look, Chris, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for coming to the Curious Learners. I'm not letting you go yet because I've got this closing question, which is what are you most curious about these days? And what are you doing to learn more about it? Oh my gosh, I'm curious about pretty much everything out there. It's hard to say a single thing that I'm mostly curious about because every day, you know, I'm, I'm hit by founders and it's just incredible what they're building. And, you know, I, I'm just trying to keep up with the speed with every single day on, on what they're doing. So that's, that's too difficult to answer because I'm curious about pretty much everything across all those verticals that I spoke about. Chris, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you very much for, for your time. Thanks for that. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.